Almighty God and Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for the gift of your holy word, and for the opportunity to come together and to study your word, to see what it has for us today. May, this, may your Holy Spirit, the same spirit that inspired and, uh, the words that we are studying today, be with us. Be with us here in this hour as we open up your word and as we, uh, as we learn from it. May that same spirit inspire our hearts and speak to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. It's good to be back with you this morning. I know Pastor Ben did a fabulous job last week while I was away, so I was sad not to be here in person, uh, but I, I was in Florida for the week with my dad who lives down there. So Newport Ritchie, everyone asks, where did you go? North of Tampa, Newport Ritchie is where he lives. So, so we're going through semi-chronologically as best as we can figure through the Gospels, right? So two weeks ago, I was here. We did an introduction, talked about uh, what is genre of the Gospels, the synoptic problem, which we'll come back to a little bit this morning. Um, last week, Ben talked. Pastor Ben talked about the Gospel of Mark. And then this week, we're delving into the Gospel of Matthew. So our very first week together, we talked about how there are two ways of reading the Gospels, at least. You can read them horizontally, meaning you can read Matthew against Mark, Luke, and John. Or you can read them vertically. Imagine that, you know, this is Matthew, this is Mark. You can read them vertically. And that's what we're doing today. We're going to really focus in just on Matthew. A few points, we'll talk about the others. But we're really trying to get a sense of why is Matthew important? What are some of its, its, its themes and emphases? Uh, and so we will do that. Before we uh, go there, though, this is, um, this is an early illuminated manuscript from Ethiopia that was just discovered about, um, well, I shouldn't say discovered. It was made known to the Western world uh, about, within the last hundred years, but it's called Abba Garima III, and it's the earliest reliably dated gospel book that has all four pictures of the Gospels, the evangelists, I should say. And we'll look at those on our final week. We'll look at all of them in week six together and talk about them a little bit. Um, but you, you notice here, um, you've got some beautiful, I mean, th- these are 1,500 plus years old, right? So these are ancient, ancient illuminations. And this is somewhat digitally restored. Um, but this is the first, one of the first pictures we have of Matthew. Now we talked about, we're not quite sure who Matthew is. Is this Matthew? We're not sure. But it's a representation of Matthew nonetheless. So, outline of today's class, where are we going? It's gonna, we're going to start with some reminders of compositional history of the Gospels, as well as a brief discussion of genre. Then we'll move into reading Matthew vertically. We just spoke about that. We'll delve into the outline of Matthew. Talk about how Matthew is a gospel for the church. And then there's this major theme throughout the whole book that is that Matthew is really an affirmation of Judaism, while there's also this hostility towards it. And there's this tension between those. Really, that's mostly present in Matthew, not so present in the other gospels. We'll talk about genealogy and the Gentiles as well. So, um, I want you to zero in on this line. I know there's a lot else going on in this chart, but as a reminder, and we'll see this chart again in the coming weeks, but, um, well, actually we'll look at this, because Mark is a Jew, we we think, we guess, is a Jew living in Rome, writing to Gentiles. Now Matthew is a Jew living in Antioch, writing to Jews, about 80 or 90 CE, give or take a decade. We're not exactly sure. He didn't, you know, submit this to a publisher and, you know, put the, if you open up, it doesn't say, oh, published in, you know, 75 CE. It doesn't say that, right? Um, so we're just not sure. But as he is an his right, he is Jewish, writing to a Jewish crowd. Now, these are Jewish Christians. They're not Jews, meaning they are, are, are still believers just in Yahweh. They don't believe Jesus is Messiah. No, these are, these are Jews by birth who grew up Jewish and came to faith in Jesus. We saw this chart a few weeks ago. I won't delve into it. You've got a copy of it there. 
But if you haven't seen it, that comic's always always makes me chuckle. So the the only reason I want to remind you is there are, there are commonalities between the gospels. Some share in the triple tradition things common to all the synoptics. Some things are unique. Some things are only shared by two. Uh, when it's shared by Matthew and Luke, they're called the double tradition. Um, yeah. So, although we're not delving too deeply into it, I want to just remind you what we talked about a few weeks ago, especially for those who couldn't be here. The synoptics, uh, we're not exactly sure how they're related. Uh, 1,500 years ago, if you would have stopped a pastor in Rome and said, how are the Gospels related? Which Gospel was written first? They would have told you Matthew was written first. That's one of the reasons Matthew comes first in our Bible today. Uh, Since then, scholars have said, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And we talked about those things two weeks back. And if you want to, we can... I can get your handouts on that. We won't go through all that. But modern scholarship says Mark is first. Mark and priority is how we, what we call that. And Matthew and Luke come after. But the question is, how are Matthew and Luke related? So are they independent of each other? Are Matthew and Luke independent? Do they both draw from Mark and draw from a mysterious other source that we don't have? This is what I was taught in seminary. This is what is the predominant theory in the West, particularly in America, North America, uh, is called the two-source hypothesis. And Q stands for the German word quella, meaning source. So it's just another source, but we don't have this document. So it's kind of, it really is a theory, a hypothesis. How are these maybe related? So this emphasizes independence. And the other hypothesis called the fairer hypothesis, uh, this is gaining gaining attention and this is predominant in britain the uk this is kind of where they lean um so if i would have gone to seminary there this is probably what they would have said this is probably right um where mark still is first and matthew draws from mark but then luke comes along after both and says "Uh, i think i can do you one better and draws from both of them so the Ferrer hypothesis dispenses with Q completely, and this was new to me. Uh, in preparation for this class, I had never heard of this hypothesis prior to two months ago uh, when I read this book, The Fourfold Gospel by Francis Watson. It is a short book, probably 160 pages. He's got a 600-page book that I'm hoping to tackle this summer. Um, but if you want a, a good book that will open your eyes to a lot, and this is a good one. So this fairer hypothesis emphasizes the interdependence of the Gospels. And we looked at this quote a few weeks back in, uh, in brief, but I want to read the whole thing because there's a lot here for Matthew that's important. So Watson writes, Matthew wants to provide a more comprehensive account than his predecessor. He may perhaps have expected his text to be used alongside Mark, right? So, oh, yeah, I'm going to use this and I want to also provide an additional account. Uh, Second, to complement the first, but more likely, Watson says, he expects to replace Mark, right? He uses about 80, I think, no, I think it's 90% of Mark is there in Matthew, right? So he uses it. Watson thinks he's probably trying to replace it. So Watson says, his is not an independent work with himself as sole author. Matthew's not only an author, he's also an editor that takes upon himself the task of preparing an enlarged, improved second edition of that earlier Markan gospel text. So the questions arise, do we have here two gospels, Mark and Matthew, or two editions of one gospel? Edition one, edition two. Uh, And then does Luke come along and then make a third edition, hoping to replace the earlier two? Now, we we can't get into the mind of these editors slash authors. We have no idea what they thought. Um, it's a compelling idea, and it, it can help us when we keep these things in mind um, when we read horizontally. When we read vertically, this doesn't much matter. Um, but when we read horizontally across the Gospels, this is helpful. Ah, so if Matthew sought to replace Mark, why would he have done so? Did he... Did he feel that the story was somehow incomplete? What does Mark start with? John the Baptist? How old is Jesus? 30-ish? 29, 30, something like that? Jesus is 30 years old. Well, 
uh, what happened to, how do you, how do we get here? Right? And for Matthew, he wants to tell a little bit of that story, not the whole story, we wish. Uh, he wants to tell a little bit more of the story of how do we get here? And how does Mark end? The witnesses are there, the body's not there, uh, the end. But we haven't seen Jesus. Jesus hasn't spoken yet. Well, you get that in, in um, Matthew here. So you get infancy narratives, also genealogies, and resurrection appearances. Those are, both, um, those are two parts of both Matthew and Luke that are expansions and additions beyond the core gospel text of Mark. Yeah, things get moved around a little bit, but if you're thinking Mark is the middle... Matthew comes along and says, we need some more in the beginning, we need some more in the end. And Luke comes along and says, yeah, we do. We need more in the beginning, more in the end, but I don't like Matthew's version, perhaps. We don't know. So the Gospels, we talked about a few weeks ago, um, the Gospels are most like ancient biographies called bioi, um, not like modern ones. And um, with this distinction in hand, we can allow for some greater flexibility. We like stories told in order, in chronological order. In the ancient world, biographies were told around themes, right? So all, um, right, so around certain topics, right? So um, then we'll see in a few moments, there's a missionary sermon. There's a sermon in, in um, Matthew about missionary, being, being missionaries. There's a sermon on the mount. Um, maybe this is not all chronological. We're not sure. This is a huge chart. You've got a copy of this. So you don't need to digest this now, and neither will we go through it. But what I want you to do is look over here for me. Can we say this together? Narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative. What? Wow, how cool is that? What's the structure of Mark? You've got the first half, you've got the second half. You've got the pre-passion, you've got the passion, Right? Matthew outlines it very, very differently. It's back and forth from stories to sermons, essentially. So stories, the first four chapters, genealogy of Jesus, the infancy narratives, the temptation, John the Baptist, the calling. um, And then you go right into a sermon and back and forth. And there's this nice rhythm in Matthew. We'll come back to a little bit of that in a moment. But first... As we consider the overall picture of the Gospel of Matthew, it's helpful to be be reminded that Matthew is a gospel for the church. And we know that, and we say that for uh, at least two reasons. The first is that the word in Greek, ekklesia, appears only twice in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And both of them are right here in Matthew. Such as, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And a few chapters later, if a member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the gathered body, those who are called out from the world and gathered together. But Matthew as a gospel for the church is also, besides just mentioning the word church, There are also some important liturgical elements that we draw just from Matthew that we don't use from the other Gospels. Um, Starting with the Lord's Prayer. Right? We we all know the Lord's Prayer. We say it every week. Do we say Luke's version? When's the last time you said Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer? Anyone? No, nobody does. It's there. It's it's there. We, We can pray it, but we don't. We don't like it. We don't like it as much as we like Matthew's. Neither has the church for two millennia because we prefer the one in Matthew. It's just fuller. It sounds nicer. It's, it's what's in our lifeblood. It's what we do. We don't do Luke's. We do Matthew's. We pray Matthew's. Also, the communion liturgy is, li- is fairly similar, but there's a few things that are um, fuller in Matthew's liturgy that aren't present in the other. But then also the baptismal formula. Go, therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If I get out there and I'm baptizing a baby and I say, the Father and the Holy Spirit, I'm going to have to rebaptize that child because I, I, I didn't baptize him in the first place. I have to say 
this formula. It's in our book of order. You have to do it. And if you are a member church, right, we have, in the PCUSA, we have other denominations that we can, uh, I could technically, I could serve at a, uh, like an ELCA church and another few others. The one thing that we say, you know, we all have our distinctives. There's one thing we say you must do anytime you baptize. ELCA, UCC, RCA, PCUSA. You have to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's it. Where does that come from? It only comes from Matthew. Okay, let's go back to these discourses for a moment. How many discourses are there? Discourse is also, uh, we can just use sermon. So it's, it's often it's Jesus talking to a crowd of people or to his disciples. Um, so there are five, yes. One, two, three, four, five. What other things, if you're looking at the notes, you may already be reading ahead. Uh, so I'll just give it to you. Um, there is a popularized view that these five sermons are the key to Matthew's structure. And that Matthew was indeed creating a new law, a new Pentateuch. Remember Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. Well, Matthew has how many sermons? Five sermons. So about 100 years ago, B.W. Bacon said, wow, there's five of them. That's, that must be what Matthew's up to. Um, since then, scholars have said, I'm not so sure about that. Dale Allison and Raymond Brown have said, that's probably not really the case. But it's helpful. Because if you think there are five sections of sermons, five discourses, one, two, three, four, five. And you start with a narrative, and you end with narrative. You go narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, and narrative. Now you know the whole structure of Matthew because you have a hand, and you know how to count, right? So um, you've got it. 20 minutes ago, you didn't know that, right? Now you know the whole structure of all 28 chapters. Now it gets a little harried because it's not quite one chapter to one chapter, right? It's, it's in different sections, but it's still helpful. So Matthew is the most Jewish and also the most Gentile of all Gospels in some ways. Oh, we're about to find out. So according to Craig Blomberg, Matthew is perhaps the most Jewish of all the Gospels, and yet at key places, it also foreshadows the Gentile mission as clearly as any of the three. So there is this, and this comes from Marcus Borg's Evolution on the Word. Um, he says that, not counting allusions or echoes, Matthew quotes the Hebrew Bible 61 times. 61 times. That's more than any of the other gospel writers. Mark, Luke, and John, they don't quote the, the, the prophets and, and the Hebrew scriptures as much as Matthew does. And Matthew also affirms the eternal validity of the law and the prophets, uh, which were designations for sections of the Hebrew Bible in his time. Now, I want you to take your Bibles there and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Can someone read verses 17 and 18 for me? Just read it in a loud voice. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Okay. You did. That was great. Yeah. So it was, it was a good passage for you to read, Judge. Thank you. Um, so not one letter, not one stroke of the law will pass away. And do not think I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I've come to fulfill. So this is something that's unique in Matthew. In a parallel passage, Mark doesn't say this. Luke doesn't say this. So... Matthew really wants to say, we're not getting rid of the Hebrew Bible. We're not getting rid of the law and the prophets. We're building on them. And we still need them. They're still important. Um, let's jump over while we still have our Bibles open. Going over to chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. I'm there now, so I'll just read. Uh, 
where it uh, reads, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, in this way, during the, the lifetime, earthly lifetime of Jesus, pre-Easter Jesus, I'm not sure, because he's still alive, so I don't know, that's a weird phrase. Jesus' lifetime. Never thought of that until now. Anyhow, um, he's restricting the mission just to the Jews. So there, again, there is this strong affirmation. This is where it begins. This is where we start doing the work of God and, and telling people the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. The Messiah has arrived, right? Probably not like they're thinking, but that's a different story. So as we recall that during Jesus' lifetime, pre-Easter, the mission is restricted. Post-Easter, the mission uh, uh, goes to everyone. The commission, the the Great Commission, right? Um, Jesus says, go into all the nations, which can also be translated as all the Gentiles, right? It's the same word. Um, So there's this move beyond. And if you think during Jesus' lifetime we're here, well, after Jesus, Jesus is just about to ascend, and he says, okay, it's here, and now I'm going to leave, and you're going to set the fuse, and it's going to go everywhere. What? Things are going to change. So now that the mission is so outwardly focused, the identity of the early church is going to really, really change uh, for good, and for bad. So in that evolution, there are some of the bad things that happen are uh, some hostility towards Judaism. Um, Matthew, whenever Matthew talks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Jesus is in conversation with them, he intensifies language um, in contrast with Mark. He intensifies language um, and those conflict between Jesus and those Jewish contemporaries. And Matthew has been a, a scriptural justification for Christians, um, for Christian anti-Semitism and, and persecution of the Jews for centuries. For centuries, right? Which is strange because G- Matthew also affirms the importance of Judaism and the Jewish people. And I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill, but... For centuries, people have looked at Matthew and said, we'll, we'll see in a minute why, exactly what verse. Well, this, this means that the Jews are the problem. We are replacing them. They need to go away. That's problematic. <clears throat> uh, open up to Matthew 27. This is where we'll go next. This is one of the, on the surface, this can be taken as a very troubling um, verse and it has historically uh, been interpreted um, very specifically and uh, yeah so twenty seven twenty five this is in the middle of the trial of Jesus right he's before Pilate and um, right actually I'll start in twenty four when Pilate saw he could do nothing but rather that a riot was beginning he took some water washed his hands before the crowd saying I'm innocent. Of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people answered as a whole. His blood be on us. And on our children. Whoa. That's a powerful verse. This is the crowd of Jews around Jesus. Right? They're just releasing Barabbas. And they're saying crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate's saying it's not me. I'm not doing this. You guys are doing it. I'm innocent. And, he, and then the Jews respond. According to Matthew. The Jews respond. Uh, his blood be on us and on our children. Ooh. So on the surface, they're taking total blame, right? And after Matthew, the early church especially, they were not kind to Jews. Um, And there was this sense that Jews everywhere and for all time, because of this verse, um, were to be held accountable for Jesus' death. Now, if you had said to me that something one of my ancestors said 2,000 years ago was going to mean that I needed to die or I was going to be persecuted for X, Y, and Z, oh, really? 2,000 years ago? Or even, even 100 years after the fact? I don't think it quite makes sense. Something I've, uh, so I'm, I've been reading through the Jewish annotated New Testament, which is 
fabulous, fabulous resource. Um, all Jewish scholars looking at the New Testament. And they, of course, they talk a lot about this because they want to make sure Christians who are picking this book up can put this into context and, and not be uh, drawn into the, the wrong historical interpretation of this. And um, so this comes from the Jewish annotated New Testament. And right there, it's, it says that the verse for Matthew is more likely about prophetic fulfillment than a universal condemnation. And further, it was, in Matthew's own context, it was all the people of Jerusalem and their children who witnessed the destruction of the city in 70. So, are we saying, is this verse saying, we killed Jesus, so let his, because he's innocent and we're really putting him to death, put, put, put the blame on us? That's not what it's saying. Here, um, instead, as we think about when Matthew was written, probably, most scholars would say, Jerusalem was just destroyed. And so, in that context, does, do we read this a little differently? His blood be upon us and our children. Is that instead to be, as here, it, it, could it be that we're already in this turmoil? There's, there's this sense that everything is lost we are, his blood be upon us and our children. Is it, we're already, pardon the language, we're already screwed. Like, it's, is there this sense that it's, it's so problematic that um, it's more about the witness of the destruction? But what I found so interesting here um, is that some scholars suggest that it's ironic. Remember way back in September, I talked about all these literary elements in Scripture. We have to keep in mind, we can't just read everything the same level. We can't think it's all supposed to be read at the surface. Maybe this is irony. Maybe this is irony because what does Jesus' blood do? Saves us. So if you read that as, may his blood be upon us and our children, and the blood of Jesus is the blood that saves us, Maybe this is a maybe this is a strange blessing. Bened- I don't know blessing I, something of Matthew saying may the Jews be saved. It's possible. Guilty of. Well, I'm trying to say we're moving beyond. Yeah. So whether or not it's it was said right because. It, um, I'm not going there. Um, I'm trying to move beyond that to say, is it is Matthew writing it ironically? Is is he um, rather than saying the crowd said this, or is he moving beyond that and saying, uh, inserting and and telling the story in a creative way to actually give a prayer? Because people were maybe blaming the Jews for the death of Jesus, and maybe he was ironically saying, yeah, may Jesus' blood be on them. May they be saved by the blood of Jesus. We're not supposed to condemn them. We don't know. We don't know. But it was an interesting thought. I've never heard that before. Okay. Um, something that's important. This is kind of a little off the, the beaten path. So we, but we'll come. Uh, it'll help to frame the whole conversation about Gospels. Is the parting of the ways. Because this is an important event that took place during the composition of the Gospels. Um, there was growing conflict between Christian Jews and the non-Christian Jews, right? Because if you're Jewish, you grew up Jewish, you went to temple and synagogue, it's not like, okay, Jesus is here, now let's go to church. That didn't happen. Where are you going every week? On the Sabbath day, you're a Christian, you believe Jesus is the Messiah, where do you go? Where do you go on Sabbath? In 40 AD, let's imagine... It's 40 AD, Jesus died, resurrected, ascended. You believe Jesus is Messiah, and it's Saturday morning, where do you go? The catacombs, not quite yet. You go to temple, you go to the synagogue. And even though everyone else doesn't quite believe the same way you do, you're still firmly rooted within this faith. They haven't, maybe they're not on board yet that Jesus is the Messiah, Everything else you believe is the same. You just believe that this one thing has come to fruition. This one thing has happened. And it's changed everything. But 
you're still firmly rooted in Judaism. So, this, there's, but there started to be this conflict. Because imagine that, um, so imagine that you're sitting in the sanctuary one week and the whole pulpit side of the uh, congregation starts to believe that Jesus has already come again a second time and he said, I'll be back in a week. And the rest of you didn't get that. And you're like, that, that can't be true. You guys are crazy. You, that didn't happen that way. I didn't see it. I wasn't there. I don't believe it. Do you think there's going to be some conflict? There was going to be some conflict. But we believe everything else. Jesus is still Lord. But, but I got this special vision. And this is, this is now what I believe. This has changed my life. And it's going to change yours too. You just don't know it yet. There's going to be conflict. Also, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE, we talked a little about this already, means the loss of the temple and the center of Judaism, right? Um, the, the temple is the center of the world. The Holy of Holies is the center of that. This is God's dwelling place. This is the middle of it all. Well, guess what? What happens when the temple is destroyed? Judaism is uh, troubled and has been, it has had to modify theology ever since because we can't sacrifice right like they once did traditionally you had a sacrifice in the temple now no more so with a threat to the jews and judaism in general those who were within became very protective became so protective that um they didn't want any external influences you know what i don't care that we're brothers and sisters and that we're that uh you still read the hebrew bible and you, you've got this Jesus thing, and that's just not us. That's not us. You've got to go. You've got to go. Um, also, in this, there is this growing number of Gentile Christians, right? So, we're all Jewish, and then after Jesus, um, we're all Jewish, and then we're all Jewish Christians. And then after Jesus ascends, okay, whew, open up the floodgates. Now the Gentiles can become Christians too, and that becomes problematic. Right? As we see in Acts with the Council of Jerusalem, do they need to become Jewish first? They don't. If they don't need to become Jewish first, then they're just Christians. They're not Jewish Christians. Again, more conflict. There's more diversity. There's more divergence in the communities and more um, conflict. Um, yeah. This again comes from Borg, Evolution of the Word. Uh, the more Gentiles there were, the less the movement struck other Jews as a form of Judaism. And Christianity's success in the Gentile world began the process of separation, the parting of the ways. So people were kicked out, ex uh, expelled, excluded, ostracized from the synagogue. And this didn't just mean, oh, I'll go find another one down the street. No, that's the synagogue. That's the temple. You cannot come here anymore. Uh, well, but I'm still in my family. I still got my family. I can still come to Hanukkah or, you know, whatever. N no, you can't. You can't. You, you cannot. You're cut off. So that means you're cut off from family as well. There's, it, it's, think of it as you need the Amish community. Think of it as when someone goes, uh, says, I'm committed to the Amish community, and then they leave as an adult. They're, they're shunned in some more traditional conservative Amish communities. They're shunned. That's kind of like what's going on here. Um, we don't know all the details. This is a very specific part of history that we just don't have a lot of details on. But presumably it meant no marriage between Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews. And perhaps severing of family and economic relationships. And in locations where Jews were a majority of the population consequences could have been quite severe. So, related to that, we're going to talk a little bit about genealogy. Not a ton this morning, but um, if, I'm, if I'm the only one in my whole family that believes in Jesus as Messiah, and I'm in the synagogue, and I'm told one Saturday morning that I'm no longer allowed to come back. My family has disowned me. My synagogue has disowned me. Who have I got to turn to? The other believers, right? So this is the continuation of the parting of the ways. But as we part ways, the Christian community takes on its own new identity. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's why the Council of Jerusalem was important. It kind of cleared those things up. Um, Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But to the one who had told him this, Jesus replied, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother, here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So, the temple has been destroyed. Christians are starting to be kicked out of the synagogue. And then we hear this verse, right? Chronologically, we hear this verse. Do we think this is odd? It's kind of odd, right? Jesus is saying, like, that's not my family. These people are my family. What are you doing, Jesus? Why are you saying that? Is it odd or is it pastorally sensitive? And when we start to, when we step back and take the context in, the people are being shunned, people are, are being cut off from their communities and their families. And then here comes Jesus saying, Who's my family? All those who do the will of the Father. You are my mother, sister, brother. Jesus there is saying, this is the family unit. This is who we need to be in community with. Um, As we move towards the actual genealogy that Matthew um, writes for us, um, something that's striking, it's not just about family and descent or heredity. It's not like this is the genetic lineage of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. That's not quite what's going on here. Instead, it's a highly condensed summary of the scriptural history of Israel. Again, a giant chart. You don't need to look at the whole thing here. Um, But this is, if you go to Matthew chapter, I think it's Matthew chapter 1. Yes. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, this is, this is that. Abraham begot, Isaac who begot, who begot with. Um, and you'll see some common names, some names that we know. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. We see David, we see Solomon, we see Joseph and Mary and Jesus. The rest of these, we might know a few, um, but those are the, the big ones. Those are the important ones. But here along, we, well, I'll come to that in a minute. Let's go here first. Um. Notice that there are three groupings because Matthew loves triads. That's just a little thing. Um, and each group has 14-ish people. Um, there are about 12 different uh, schools of thought as to why this doesn't quite add up. If you notice, Jeconiah is down here and up here. That's the one that I'm most convinced by, that Jeconiah should be counted twice because during Jeconiah's lifetime, the... Um, the Babylonian exile happened, and that was kind of what starts off group three here. Um, I'm not sure if that's the case. There are scholars in, I'm no joke, 12 different camps as to why this doesn't add up. Some people say Matthew couldn't count. Some people say maybe there's a manuscript issue. Some people say, I don't know. But 14 is an important number here. Um, and we talked about this uh, last spring um, because um, 14 in the Hebrew language, each letter stands for a number. Aleph, uh, uh, which is the first letter, is one. Bet is two. Gimel, three. Right, keeps going. But the name David, when you take all the letters, which, which are uh, Dalet, Vav, and Dalet, it's four plus six plus four, which equals 14. So, what Matthew is doing here, because if you look at Luke's genealogy, it's not the same, right? And we're not trying to say that one is right or one is wrong. They have different purposes. But essentially, what, what Matthew is trying to do here is shout to you, David, David, David. This is a son of David. 
Do you get this? He is the Messiah. He is the son of David, David, David. Right? It's a little coded. We have to work at it a little bit. But that's kind of, that's where we get this. Okay. Um, also here, notice that there are a few names in bold. What's special about those five names? Say again? Females. They're all women. Um, what? Why? What's going on here? So, yeah, you have, these are just the generations taken out of uh, order, but listed with the, the, the women. Um, so the evangelist completes his, it's a quartet of female characters, ancestors or foremothers of Jesus, but they're not Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. That's what we'd expect. Instead, something else is going on. Matthew specifically lists out Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and he doesn't give, her, give the name. We know from elsewhere it's Bathsheba, is Uriah's wife. Why does he give those four and not the ones we expect? We just said, right, this goes back to the tension. There's this tension of, it's a big affirmation of Judaism, but then there's this, this move beyond. There's not, this is not an example of hostility, but this is a, a move beyond Judaism. That parting of the ways, this is focusing on the Gentiles, right? So Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, were all Gentiles. What? You mean that Jesus is descended from Gentiles? How can that be? So for Matthew, there's not a big interest in the 12 tribes, uh, but instead the sacred scriptural past is reshaped so that it points towards a single goal, the birth of the Messiah. And the genealogy um, seems intended to disturb the readers. It doesn't present just the scriptural history of Israel as an inspirational story of faith and salvation, but it directs attention to the shadow side of that history. Because if you go back and you look at each of these stories, um, these women are, uh, th there's a little bit of scandal there's some, a lot, you know, right? David and Bathsheba. Need I say more? Every one of these has a, a little bit of a scandal. It's not quite as clear-cut and traditional as you would expect. Um, but what is very interesting here, oops, um, we have this, this big genealogy of Jesus and saying, David, 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 Jesus is descended from who? David. And um, you get that, and then you have this whole account of the virgin birth. What? There's this strange tension. They seem to almost cancel each other out. Because at the very end of the genealogy, it says, Who begat Joseph, who by Mary, Jesus was born. Why'd you just give me that whole genealogy if it's Joseph's genealogy? And if it's a virgin birth? So there's this weird tension there too. I don't know. I don't have an answer as to what to, what to do with it. Um, but if Jesus really was born of a virgin, meaning no genetic relationship to Joseph, what's the point of including his stepfather's lineage? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, take a moment to, this is this, I found this picture yesterday and I was thrilled to find it. Take a, pic, a moment to digest this with me and then we'll look a little more closely at it. But here on the left, you have Moses, the prince of Egypt, with the, the Ten Commandments in his hands. Over here, you've got Jesus, the prince of peace, right? He's in the benediction hand, cross. Here you've got the uh, serpent, the raised serpent, Mount Sinai, Mount of, Be Mount of Beatitudes, the Great Commandments, the Ten Commandments, there are all these similarities that are particularly noticeable and, and emphasized in the Gospel of Matthew. So for Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. And who is Moses for the, for the Israelites? He is, yeah, we've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those are great. But Moses. I mean, if there's ever a hero of the faith who did it all and saved us from slavery and brought us... Right, Moses, right? We love Moses. 
And guess what? If you liked Moses, you're going to love this guy even better. This guy, look at everything. He did everything that Moses did and more. And more. So, just to uh, uh, lift up a few things. Moses crossed the sea. Jesus, baptism in Jordan. They both have infancy narratives. There's some stories surrounding their birth, which we don't get a lot of throughout the whole Bible. Um, you have the slaughter of the innocents, right? Moses was put on the, the little basket, put down the river so that he wouldn't be killed. Jesus was almost killed by Herod, right? Um, similar stories there. There's, they also both flee to Egypt, right? Um, or fl- have the flight to Egypt. There's this sense that there is an Egypt and out of Egypt, uh, motion. They both teach from a mountain, right? Moses from Mount Sinai, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke, it's a sermon on the plain. He's not on a mountain, but Matthew, we need to put him on a mountain. Um, oh, and I forgot to put this in there, but this is a, a f- other, another little funny thing. Um, in Matthew only, whenever you see Matthew sit, uh, have Jesus or anyone sitting down, it's the strangest little thing. You'll, hopefully you'll, you'll see it now that you, you read it. But whenever anyone in the Gospel of Matthew just sits down, for Matthew it means that they have authority. They have authority. Because everyone else had to stand or sit on the floor, right, maybe. But he sits down and demands attention. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And also the angel at the end of the Gospel, angel rolls, this tomb away, rolls the stone away to the tomb, and what does he do to it? He sits on it. Why did he sit on it? Because there is authority over death. Okay. Uh, Moses' face was uh, shining like the sun. And we have the transfiguration. 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, Moses brought us freedom from slavery. Jesus brings us slavery, uh, freedom from sin. Um, Moses leads the people to their earthly home, the promised land. While Jesus leads them to their heavenly home. So lots and lots of similar, and this is just scratching the surface. There's a whole book uh, uh, about the new Moses, Jesus' new Moses. <clears throat> wow, I might actually even end early today. Um, then we'll have some time for questions. So God is with us, Emmanuel. God is with us. Can someone open up to Matthew one twenty three and read for us? I'm going to go grab some water while you do. Ooh, bunch of folks. Can somebody read Matthew one twenty three for us? Trust someone did it. Oh, good. Okay. Now can someone read Matthew eighteen twenty? Read it when you get there. Oh, isn't that a great verse? That always gives me such such a sense of peace when I'm with other Christians, right? Where two or three are gathered, there I am. Mm. Okay. How about Matthew 28, 20? And remember, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So at the beginning of the book, Emmanuel, where two or three are gathered, I am there with you. And here at the very end, remember, I am with you until the end of the age. So if, there, if there's one um, important thing to take away, it's that Jesus is present. Jesus is with us, God with us. 
So from take, some takeaways and then we'll move to questions because, wow, we actually have time. I thought I was, I did not think I was going to get through all that today. Okay. Um, so I skipped, I actually, I, I made more than I had, than, than we went through today. So there are about two or three slides we didn't even get to. Um, so as we remember and we think about Matthew, remember that Matthew is a gospel for the church. It is where we draw the Lord's Prayer, the baptismal liturgy. It's what we draw from in communion. And it's also where we see the word church. There's also this structure around narrative discourse, right? You know the whole, you can impress your friends this week and say, I learned the whole outline of Matthew. Are you ready? Narrative discourse, narrative discourse, narrative discourse, narrative discourse, narrative discourse, narrative. There you go. I got it. The whole thing. Just like the Pentateuch, maybe. Um, and Matthew also has this simultaneous affirmation of Judaism, more than 61 quotes, um, explicit quotes, not counting allusions and echoes, but it also has this strange hostility towards it, right? The, the conversations with the Pharisees are a little ramped up. Um, the, they're the brood of vipers, um, and there's also that blood curse. May, may his blood be upon us and our children, what do we do with that? And then there's also a typological interpretation um, that there are many parallels between Moses and Jesus. If you thought Moses was cool, just wait. You, ha- you don't know anything yet. Jesus is cool and cooler than Moses ever was. We still like Moses, right? But we like Jesus more. And Jesus is always with us. So, next week, we will delve into the gospel according to Luke. Then we will go to John. And then we'll have our last week together. And Easter's almost here. I can't believe it. But Easter's here in a few weeks. Okay. So, we've got about... This is the first time this has ever happened. We've got five minutes. So, uh, what questions do we have? Ed. Would the Presbyterian Church marry a Jew and a Presbyterian? I, uh, that wow, I don't know. Uh, can they get married? Yes. Can uh, I don't. Huh. It could be. I wow. This is not, I, I didn't know we were doing polity questions today. Um, I could grab my book of order and we could, yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure. Right, right. Well, um, I don't know that we would do it. Because I think generally our policy here is if you're not members, then you have to be uh, in a relationship with Jesus as Lord. Uh, But I'm sure, I I don't know in this congregation, I'm sure within the denomination, people have been, Presbyterians have married uh, people who are Jewish. Um, That wouldn't surprise me. Um. I don't know that we're perpetuating it as much as just like the Jews of old when, uh, when Christians were started propping, uh, cropping up within their own congregations, they said, we need to preserve our own identity. You have to go. I think it's more a sense of preservation of identity. Uh, just like in the Catholic Church, right? Um, that there's a sense of you have to be Catholic to be married here. You have to raise your children Catholic. Um, it's a lot stronger in the Catholic Church than it is in Presbyterian and Protestant denominations, but you have to agree to raise your children Catholic, yes, and pre-Cana and all that, yeah. Okay. So you were married in a Catholic church, okay. Because you were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the now, if you were baptized uh, in a, into a different, 
like a Unitarian faith where you're just baptized into, into God or Jesus or the Spirit, they, wouldn't, they would not have accepted it. But that's a different story. Questions on Matthew? Yep. Absolutely. From the, the line of David, he is a descendant of King David, and a descendant of a king is another king. So, absolutely. David, David, David. David. Narrative discourse, narrative discourse. David, David, David. Yeah. No, Mary was a Jew. Oh, sorry. That was uh, unclear on that slide. The f- um, yeah, no. Mary was absolutely Jewish. That slide was unclear. How quickly can I go back here? This. Here, uh, Rachel, Tamar, Rahab. Oh, no, 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 sorry. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba are all Gentiles. No, this is, um, yeah, so Mary's not a Gentile. Yeah, but, um, yeah, okay, I'm not going to go there. Other questions? Oop, Greg? That is interesting. Wow. Any other questions on... Let's go to the takeaways again. Any other questions on Matthew? Is any of this material new for us? Or is this, you know, this is old hat. We've heard this all before. Question? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's another tension between spirit and human. And can we really blame the Jews for the death of Jesus? The early church would say, yes, they're the ones who are guilty. Um, but that was particularly after the parting of the ways that that, I, um, I'm not even going to call it a theology, that ideology really took root. Because if I'm Jewish... And I'm still in the temple. I'm not going to blame everyone around me for killing Jesus. But once we leave the temple, once we, we are so far removed from the Jewish community, then there is this sense that well, it was their fault. And so let's blame them. But yeah, you're right. So there's a sense of mob mentality, um, tendency to blame. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, last question. Yeah. Yeah, the sins of the father pass to the next generation. Yeah. I mean that's that's present in the Hebrew Bible for sure. That's that's there. Um I don't know how much people would have heard that here, but perhaps. Um, but this is a unique passage. This doesn't appear in Mark and Luke. Um, again, is 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 Mark trying to, con- or excuse me, is Matthew trying to condemn uh, the Jews and saying they are complicit? Is this the mob mentality? Are they the ones who killed Jesus? 
And so everyone is, all the rest of the Jews are blamed. Part of that is problematic because Jews are also Christians. So are you then blaming yourselves as well? In this early church, all the Christians are still Jews. So you're blaming yourself. It just doesn't make good historical contextualized sense. It just doesn't work. Um, but I, I, what my takeaway is I love the, that there's this per, perchance, there's this irony there. May Jesus' blood be on us and on our children. So rather than a blood crime, rather than a condemnation, maybe it's a prayer. And so let that be uh, what we go with today, that Jesus is with us and may Jesus' blood be on us and upon our children. And that's a good thing. Amen. Let us go. Let us go forth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Say again. There are videos for Luke too. If you, if you were on Facebook and you saw that link that I posted, go back to the link and you can see uh, videos for Luke as well. Thank you.